0: Leading saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning.
1: Hello and welcome to my study. Come in, uh, have a seat. I imagine you'll recognize the gentleman to my right, my valet Wilkinson. Uh, He assists with our program by pulling our references from the shelves and reading any passages to be quoted directly. Pleased to meet you. This time around we'll be covering a topic I've had a couple listeners request. It's... It's always nice to get your feedback on shows.
0: There were quite a few enthusiastic comments and suggestions after the last Wildman show. Mostly from Blake Smith. He only left two, actually, and the first was only a request to speak with you in real time. I'm sure he
1: was just calling to ask why he didn't mention Bigfoot in the Wildman episode. All his Monster Talk fans love Bigfoot. Well, he actually doesn't mention Bigfoot in the message. You really should listen to Follow it. Bigfoot into the woods and you get a little lost, if you know what I mean. Blake's not that bad. He's not like that. But you get a little booze in him. And then he starts getting uh, speculative. Uh, starts mentioning Jack Parsons over and over.
0: Well, if you just listen to the message, I believe he mentions
1: a topic you were interested in covering. You no, know, it's the fans. They stalk him. When he was in town and I met him at that convention, I could barely get a word in edgewise because he kept getting approached by these people. Someone writing a science fiction rock opera cornered us in a stairwell. I don't even know why I leave the house.
0: I suppose a large fan base can be a mixed blessing.
1: Those topics do get all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork.
0: Well, his show has been on much longer than ours. I'm Sure, that
1: has a lot to do with it. With what? Him having so many fans? Well, if you want all those messages about someone's dog cornering a chupacabra or people tweeting at you about Bigfoot stealing their mail, look, just play the message. Let's hope he hasn't been drinking or it'll be long. It is a bit long. Well, that's what fast forward's for. Very well. So did I, I hate to be critical, yet, yet somehow you talked about beastly saints yet didn't cover dog-headed saints and monsters. Don't you think people want to know about the legend of St. Christopher or uh, about the similarities between the things yeah. that have been cited in Michigan, speech and Anubis? No. I mean, Skip. what if all this is... T- ...an epidemic of dogman sightings right now? Skip. not to Jack Parsons Okay Okay I'm calming down Just You just Really ought to cover all that stuff Oh and uh Hey Say hi to Wilkinson for me I think that was the gist of it Having all those fans doesn't make it a better show It's not everything It's not all about subscriber numbers No sir There's also the amount of patreon money that comes in each month true and anyway the real enemy is lore the podcast
0: or the television program
1: yeah let's just do our stupid show episode 19 worm songs and beastly sucklers So I am your host, Al Ridenour, and our show, Bone and Sickle, as you likely know, is about the intertwining of horror and folklore, often with a little cultural history thrown in. This uh, particular nexus was something I began exploring with my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and the show allows me to continue this sort of a... Bone and Sickle is made possible through the generosity of our wonderful Patreon donors, and I'll have uh, more details on all that at the end of the show.
0: In a remote corner of present-day England, a young archaeologist named Angus Flint unearths a mysterious ancient skull and uncovers a horrifying pagan mysticism. Angus sets out to destroy the horrible white worm and his evil worshippers before they make a living sacrifice of the young Virgin Eve. slither into a labyrinth of terror and
1: fun with the master of the bazaar, Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm. Well, it's not as bad as all that, actually. Definitely not everyone's cup of tea, but if you can get around Russell's uh, heavy-handed sexual preoccupations and low-budget visionary stylings, it's an entertaining romp. Russell's uh, 1988 film takes its title and some of its plotline from a novel by the creator of Dracula, Bram Stoker, uh, something we'll explore more in a bit. Uh, The film was intended as a follow-up to Russell's much better and more successful production, Gothic, one that would also be of interest to uh, listeners as a sort of historical fantasy spun around the origins of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and John Polidori's The Vampire. Now, a word about the word worm, which, as you likely know or have surmised, here means dragon. Uh, Some sources insist a bit overzealously that uh, this old English word uh, only describes a creature that crawls uh, serpentine fashion on the ground and that it may or may not have two legs. In historical usage, however, uh, words like this tend to be a bit harder to pin down, Uh, But uh, one thing that does seem to usually apply is that the worm, dragon, uh, does not have wings and does not fly. More uh, likely to have wings would be the uh, Middle English uh, word wyvern, uh, which also would usually only have two legs. Now, this uh, Bram Stoker novel, I, I feel I should warn fans of Stoker's Dracula that they needn't get uh, their hopes up too much. It's not his best work. In fact, it's usually regarded as his worst novel and uh, sadly uh, it was also his last as the book was published in 1911, only a year before he died. Uh, and Stoker had been ill actually since 1906 and some say with syphilis and had suffered a number of strokes, all of which likely affected the book's uh, quality. The story revolves around the australian adam salton who has returned to england on the request of his uh, great uncle richard who's eager to connect with his only living relative and heir uh, adam is soon introduced to richard's friend nathaniel de salas a sort of Van Helsing-like character who is eager to help the uh, sultans work out some strange goings-on in the area involving the heir of another old family, Edgar uh, Caswall, and uh, Lady Arabella March, uh, occupying the estate known in the distant pagan past as uh, Diana's Grove. Decelis suggests that there is a connection between uh, Lady March and the local legend of the White Worm. Uh, Sinister events pile up. Uh, Adam's property is overrun by black snakes. A local child nearly dies from a mysterious bite on his neck. Uh, We learn another child was earlier killed and that a number of animals have also been found dead. When Adam obtains a mongoose to hunt the snakes on his land it ends up savagely ripped apart in Lady March's bare hands. It's uh, also revealed that she has killed one of her servants. De Salis believes the aristocrat is uh, possessed by the spirit of the legendary worm and concealed within her mansion he explains is a well in which the ancient monster resides. The murdered servant and others who have disappeared have probably been served up by Lady March as worm food. Quite a ways into the book, the immense creature is glimpsed from a distance at night, first only visible as a pair of green, glowing eyes. By
0: degrees, as their eyes got the right focus, they saw an immense, towering mass that seemed snowy white. It was tall and thin. The lower part was hidden by the trees which lay between. But they could follow the tall white shaft and the duplicate green lights which topped it. As they looked, there was a movement. The shaft seemed to bend, and the line of green light descended amongst the trees. They could see the green light twinkle as it passed between the obstructing branches. Seeing where the head of the monster was, the two men ventured a little further forward and saw that the hidden mass at the base of the shaft was composed of vast coils of the great serpent's body, forming a base from which the upright mass rose. As they looked, this lower mass moved, the glistening folds catching the moonlight, and they could see the monster's progress was along the ground
1: plot is hatched to destroy the worm by filling the well with sand and dynamite. But before the explosives can be ignited, they are confronted by Lady March and Caswell. The detonation, however, is accomplished by a well-placed lightning strike. Which destroys the monster, its servants, and Diana's grove. Uh, The effect of the dynamite on the beast is described in splendidly grisly detail. The whole
0: place looked as if a sea of blood had been beating against it. Each of the explosions from below had thrown out from the well hole, as if it had been the mouth of a cannon. A mass of fine sand mixed with blood, and a horrible repulsive slime, in which were great masses of rent and torn flesh and fat. Many of the awful fragments were of something which had lately been alive. They quivered and trembled and writhed as though they were still in torment, a supposition to which the unending scream gave a horrible credence. Some of these fragments were partially covered with white skin, as of a human being, and others the largest and most numerous with scaled skin, as of a gigantic lizard or serpent. Once in a sort of lull or pause, the seething contents of the whole rose after the manner of a bubbling spring, and Adam saw part of the thin form of Lady Arabella forced up to the top amid a mass of blood and slime, and what looked as if it had been the entrails of a monster torn into shreds. One, two, three, four! <laughs>
1: John Dumpton went a fishing horse, a fishing in the wheel. He caught a fish up on his hook because looked mighty queer. Now what the kind of fish it was, John Dumpton couldn't tell. But he didn't like the look of it, so he threw it down a well. This song from Russell's Lair of the White Worm, about the uh Dampton worm, as it's called in the film is uh, performed uh, in a party scene by a band as revelers dance through the crowd with an enormous dragon puppet. In fact, the song is a genuine folk ballad about the Lampton Worm, uh, a legend from northeast England about a dragon accidentally unleashed and later slain by John Lampton of Lampton Hall in County Durham. While the song only dates to uh, 1867... The legend itself appears uh, in the record about a century earlier, and a field map from 1750 shows features such as Worm Hill and Worm Well already named for elements in the story. Russell's use of the song and legend follows the example of Bram Stoker, who not only drew inspiration from the legend for his novel, but even has his uh, DeSalis character mention the legend as possibly describing an actual living creature. Or, as they say, This
0: isn't a fairy story! It's the tale of a lumped
1: Well, at least the residents of County Durham take the story seriously enough to have produced this 2014 symphonic retelling in Durham Cathedral. I'll post the whole video uh, to the site. There's a bit more to the legend that makes it into the song, but we'll go through the song and fill in the other bits as we go. The song itself was written uh, for a uh, pantomime uh, performance, or Panto, one of those uh, comedic British uh, shows mainly for children, so it's not the most serious retelling of the legend. And as the song ends with a toast to John Lampton for having saved the people from the worm, there's also a uh, rowdy... Uh, pub feel to the thing. Uh, you get this feeling also from the refrain, which comes back between each verse, to tell the audience to quiet down.
0: Wished, uh,
1: that wished by the way, is Sunderland dialect for shh. And, uh, had your gobs means, uh, shut your mouths. As we've heard, the story begins with John Lampton, uh, fishing. Significantly, uh, fishing on a Sunday rather than attending church. He hooks something, but it's no ordinary fish. As it's told in Alfred Fryer's 1884 book of English fairy tales from the North Country.
0: He succeeded in dragging ashore a strange-looking creature... It was uglier than the most hideous fish his fancy had ever pictured in dreams. A huge, misshapen head, more than a span in breadth, was garnished with a pair of jaws which opened and shut continuously as if they sought something to devour. Two flaming red eyes and a bulky body of an olive green hue, glistening with slime, completed its dreadful appearance.
1: A mysterious old man passing by, portrayed as something of a prophet, observes the strange creature and declares it the work of the devil, sent as a result of Lambton's refusal to attend church and generally uh, unchristian ways. Having no use for it and likely a little repulsed by the thing, Lambton throws the creature down a well that later comes to be known as Worm Well. Flash forward many years and Lambton has ridden off to the Crusades uh, in some versions as an act of penance for the sins of his youth. All the while the creature in the well is growing according to the song. Eventually the evil spreads, the well becomes poisonous Cows stop giving milk, sheep and cows start disappearing, children start disappearing, and the full-grown beast, when it appears, is so long that it can wrap itself seven times around a nearby hill dubbed Worm Hill. Then it becomes more aggressive. According to Joseph Jacobs' 1894 book, More English Fairy Tales,
0: It crossed the river and came right up to Landon Hall itself, where the old man lived on all alone his only son, having gone to the Holy Land. What to do? The worm was coming closer and closer to the hall. Women were shrieking, men were gathering weapons, dogs were barking, and horses neighing with terror.
1: The resolution is not what you'd expect. The monster is placated, even sedated perhaps, by a generous meal of milk rushed to the hall by the county's milkmaids. This becomes a daily ritual. The milk of nine cows, twenty gallons, poured into a stone feeding trough to keep the beast tame. As it becomes more difficult to meet this demand, efforts are made to dispatch the creature. But the villagers soon discover that every time a blade is turned against the worm, the flesh hacked away reunites with the creature's body. Visiting knights ride out to battle the worm, but find the beast has coiled its tail around uprooted trees and is using them as a club to destroy any who approach. Finally, after seven years, John Lampton returns from the Holy Land and sees his father's kingdom devastated by the worm. Realizing he is responsible for unleashing this monster, he vows to destroy it, but knows he cannot defeat it by his strength or skill alone. What he must do is described in the Book of English Fairy Tales from the North Country.
0: Now in a cave in the forest, whose entrance was so narrow and so choked up with tangled ferns and brambles that few could find it, dwelt an ancient Sybil, and Sir John resolved to consult her before venturing on the perilous enterprise. He sought her solitary abode under cover of night. A dim blue light burned in the cavern, revealing but indistinctly its dark recesses, damp with moisture that dripped constantly from the roof, and tenanted by myriads of bats which flapped their broad wings and squeaked horribly like evil spirits, dusky newts and bloated toads crawled over the slimy floor, and hideous adders in dark corners raised their flat heads with gleaming eyes and forked hissing tongues.
1: The Sibyl, we've talked about the Sibyl in our Cave Witches episode, uh, instructs Lampton to create a special suit of armor studded with blades and spearheads that will pierce the worm should it try to coil around him. Furthermore, the worm can only be defeated if Lampton attacks it while it sits wrapped around a particular rock in the middle of the river. In this way, flesh hacked from the beast will be carried off by the river's currents before it can reattach itself. But that's not all.
0: One more thing, the witch then said with greed. You must kill the next thing you see once that slug is deed. And if you didn't kill the life that you will see there first, dreadful things will happen, and the lanterns will be cursed!
1: Lampton makes plans with his father to fulfill this last requirement of killing the first living thing after he defeats the beast by arranging to have a dog, rather than unsuspecting human, be the sacrificial victim. At a signal on his hunting horn, the old man is to release a dog that will run to his son so that a human life is spared. We'll let uh, Wilkinson continue the story from the 1894 book, More English Fairy Tales. The word child uh, you'll hear happens to be spelled with an extra E at the end and is an archaic term for a youth of uh, noble birth.
0: As dawn broke, the worm uncoiled its sticky twine from around the hill and it came to its rock in the river. When it perceived the child waiting for it, it lashed the waters in its fury and wound its coils round the child and then attempted to crush him to death. But the more pressed, the deeper dug the spearheads into its sides, still pressed and pressed till all the water around it was crimson with its blood. Then the worm unwound itself and left the child free to use his sword. He raised it, brought it down, and cut the worm in two. One half fell into the river and was carried swiftly away. Once more, the head and the remainder of the body encircled the child, but with less force, and the spearheads did their work. At last, the worm uncoiled itself, snorted its last foam of blood and fire, and rolled dying into the river, and was never seen again.
1: All very exciting, of course, and so exciting that John Lampton's father, upon hearing the signal forgets and rushes out to congratulate his son. Lampton cannot bring himself to slay his own father, and though the dog is also released and killed, it is too late to avert the curse.
0: And so the witch's curse came true, the prophecy she told. From that day on, no Lampton man lived till they were old.
1: As it turns out, three generations of Lamptons historically did die violent deaths, lending a bit of credence, for a while, to the legend's curse. Perhaps the curse could be blamed for another Lampton Worm movie never getting made, it was, of all things, a sequel to that film I've mentioned before, and will mention again, a classic in the folk horror genre, The Wicker Man, 1973 version, of course. The film was to be called The Loathsome Lampton Worm, and the short treatment, written in 1989 by uh, The Wicker Man's original screenwriter, Anthony Schaffer, begins with Sergeant Howie's rescue from the flaming effigy by police arriving from the mainland. Before Lord Summerisle can be brought to justice, Howie is somehow entangled in a series of challenges pitting the old gods against his own very Christian faith. The film would have required some rather elaborate special effects, a final confrontation between Howie and a fire-spewing dragon, witches flying on broomsticks and the like, and uh, Howie was to die again this time, uh, leaping suicidally from a cliff tied, apparently, to a pair of large eagle.
0: Oh God! Oh Jesus Christ!
1: <laughs> the captain World! Now is the time for you to squirt! Now off to pensure, I will wriggle. But remember when you
0: fish alone. I could be lurking under any snow. <laughs> so don't put worms upon your hook, because I'll be there to take a look. And if you do, I'll make sure
1: you're dead. Have you considered using flies instead? <laughs> I just thought I'd throw in that little bit of advice from a folk play version of the Lampton Worm story. Comic play, panto style. There's a uh, peculiar element in this story we've been discussing that I want to examine more closely, that is the uh, dragon being placated by milk, which I would imagine strikes most listeners as rather odd. Unlike dragons guarding hordes of gold or other traits preserved in uh, our more modern stories involving dragons, like uh, Tolkien's for instance, um, this aspect has obviously not been retained. But There are plenty of English dragons fond of milk. Uh, Also in County Durham, where the Lampton Worm takes place, the uh, legend of the Sexton Worm has the beast uh, also placated with the milk of nine cows. This uh, story doesn't even have the monster eating livestock and children. He eats only milk and uh, only threatens the community with his poisonous breath. Uh, Virtually the same story is told in Somerset of a dragon and heroic knight, John Aller. In a uh, southwest Gloucestershire legend, a dragon is defeated by the knight John Smith, who sedates the beast with gallons of milk, allowing it to be easily slain. In uh, Hampshire, in the town of Bistern, uh, Sir Maurice Berkeley leaves milk in a location now bearing the name Dragonfield, and while the beast is uh, distractedly lapping it up, he leaps out and administers a fatal blow. In Wales, it's believed that snakes that drink milk can become a uh, gwibber, a particular type of dragon. A bit about that from Brisson, a Welsh language and cultural publication from 1861.
0: If a snake chances to have an opportunity to drink of a woman's milk, it is certain to become a gwibber. When a woman happens to be far from her child and her breasts are full and beginning to give her pain, she sometimes milks them on the ground in order to ease them. To, to this the peasantry in parts of Cardiganshire have Carthaganshire a strong objection, lest the snake, snake should come there and drink the milk, and so become a guiver.
1: Odd as it may seem, this predilection of dragons for milk can pretty easily be traced uh, to earlier beliefs about snakes. The uh, Roman natural philosopher Pliny the Elder, in the first century declared of a uh, snake the Romans called the boa, uh, after which the constrictor was later named,
0: their chief food is Milk
1: sucked from cows. The belief may have reached Europe via even older tales from India, and a number of European folk tales involving snakes' appetite for milk bear striking resemblance to stories from the subcontinent. Some medieval stories of uh, the uh, Arthurian knight Cardoc and the uh, king of Breast in Brittany uh, specifically describe snakes attracted uh, to not only milk, but the breasts of nursing women or the breasts of women in general. I'll post a bit more about those on the uh, Patreon site. The belief in snakes uh, milking cows, so to speak, was remarkably widespread and uh, persistent. In fact, I found a number of stories uh, reporting snakes milking cows uh, from sources as late as the 20th century. Here's one of the more uh, amusing ones from a 1931 edition of the Dayton Daily News uh, reporting on an incident from South Dakota, supposedly.
0: All summer long, a huge milk snake dwelt in a swamp near Ivan Mikhelevich's farm. The snake sucked four of Ivan's best cows four times so that Mikelovich had to feed the calves by hand. Ivan organized a hunting party. Armed with pitchforks, guns, and knives, they invaded the swamp. Ivan found the snake swollen four times its normal size. He shot the snake. The snake, writhing in agony over its excessive meal, had churned the cream to butter. Five pounds of butter were taken from the stomach.
1: If you've seen the film, The Witch, and I really hope you have, uh, you'll remember not only this uh, witchy concern for dairy products at the film's end, but also a brief and disturbing shot of uh, a witch suckling at the teats of the uh, livestock in the goat shed. So, witches also stole milk, according to tradition. witchcraft expert Ronald Hutton has pointed out that theft of milk was the charge most frequently levied against witches in Poland, uh, Scandinavia, and northern Germany, just as uh, raising storms was the primary uh, business of witches supposedly in the Alps, or sending wolves to attack livestock was the uh, charge most often uh, made in Lorraine. Usually, this uh, theft of milk would not be accomplished in person, but via one of the uh, uh, beastly sucklers, as they've dubbed them in the show's title. Uh, Hares were the most common form that would suck milk from livestock by night and possibly also lick up processed cream as well. Upon returning to the witch's lair, they would vomit up their ill-gotten gains. In Denmark, uh, Germany, and Poland, and further south in Europe... The milk thief was the witch herself transformed into a hare. But further north, in Scandinavia and in Britain, the witch would create the milk hare, as they're called. Uh, From the 1896 book, Scandinavian Folklore, by William Craigie.
0: The milk hare consists merely of a few wooden pegs and a stocking leg. The witches pour a drop of milk, which they have taken from the other cows, into a stocking leg and tell it to go and suck the other cows.
1: He continues...
0: This hare was shot as well, and the hunter found the remains, that is, some pegs and a stocking leg, with a splash of milk on the field.
1: In Scandinavia, cats, called troll cats, are also sent by witches to accomplish the deed. A Norwegian account collected as late as 1929, ...describes a witch creating a troll cat from wood shavings and three drops of blood drawn from her finger. This uh, magical act could only be accomplished on a Thursday and must be accompanied by the incantation.
0: Now I have given you flesh and blood. May old Nick give you power and life.
1: The Troll Cat often was created from balled-up yarn and was sometimes simply called, for that reason, a Troll Ball. In the north of Sweden, nine colors of yarn would be used, anointed with drops of the witch's blood, and given life with this incantation.
0: I give you blood. The devil gives you courage. You shall run for me on earth.
1: I shall burn for you in hell. In Iceland, a creature called uh, the uh, Tilberi, I don't know if that pronunciation is quite right, uh, it means carrier, uh, would be created by witches to uh, suck or steal milk. They seem to have uh, no particular animal form uh, and were amorphous or elastic enough to sit upon the cow's back and stretch down to reach the udders. The recipe for creating a Tilbury involves stealing a rib from a corpse buried on Whitsunday, twisting grey wool around it, it must be uh, stolen wool by the way, and then incubating the thing between the witch's breasts. Wine must also be stolen during communion and spit upon the Tilbury over a course of weeks, with the creature gaining more strength each time. Further, the beast must be suckled on the inner thigh of the witch where it creates a uh, tell-tale witch's mark raised like a wart or small teat. All of this uh, feeding a magical servant on the witch's own blood or suckling the creature in the witch's body, of course, reminds us of uh, the more general belief in uh, witches familiars, not explicitly dedicated to milk theft, but uh, likewise sustained. So, to wrap up the show, I want to return to our Legendary dragons and their songs, uh, ones which actually also feature witches. The first is also from northeast England, like the Lampton Worm, from Northumbria, and about a king, his children, and a stepmother associated with uh, Bamburgh Castle. It's called the Laidley Worm of Spindleston Hugh. Laidley uh, here means loathsome or ugly. Uh, Spindleston Hugh is a nearby mountain crag. It begins with the death of the king's wife and his remarriage to a witch who becomes jealous of her stepdaughter and turns her into a ladly worm who ravages the country. Many knights attempt to slay the dragon but fail. However, when the son returns home from some foreign adventure, perhaps the Crusades, he does not fight the dragon but kisses it, transforming it back into his sister. He also turns the stepmother into a toad and becomes king. There are a number of variations of this song, telling the story from different perspectives, with different uh, character names or details. Uh, some of the titles are Kemp Owen, Allison, Gross. Uh, but the strangest variation is The Lely Worm and the Mackerel of the Sea. It's told from the son's perspective and also begins with the queen's death.
0: I was but seven-year-old when my mother she did tea. My father married the worst woman the world had ever seen.
1: By the way, you can find all these songs linked in their entirety on the website. So, in this one, uh, son narrator is turned into the worm, and the sister, a fish, a mackerel. The king obtains the witch's wand to himself transform the dragon's son back into his boy, and while you'd think the daughter might also be transformed, she chooses to remain a mackerel. Why? Uh, Because she doesn't want to chance being transformed again by the wicked stepmother. I'm not sure what sense to make of all that, but it's somehow less strange than the verse describing the fish daughter combing the dragon son's hair.
0: And every Saturday at noon the mackerel comes to me and she takes my lady head and lays it on her knee. She came that we as came And washes it
1: in the sea This is odd in so many ways. Uh, it's got a dragon with long hair that requires a weekly beauty regimen uh, mackerels on dry land holding silver combs with their fin hands and also anatomically modified to have knees on which a dragon can recline. I guess this is just the... 17th century Northumbrian sense of the absurd, but the song does end happily with the stepmother rightfully punished The king drags his wife out to the woods and burns her at the stake as one does um, so a happy ending I suppose or depending on your perspective a horrific one uh, horrific enough at least to serve as a uh, fitting ending to our show he did
0: her burn and there he did her burn.
1: I do hope all of you have been enjoying our shows and will continue listening and tell your friends about what we uh, are doing here. Um, We particularly appreciate reviews from those of you who are fond of the show. Uh, They make all the difference in the show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. Our website, BowdoinSickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter, along with uh, show notes that are filled with uh, images and and video links to um, any outside music used in the program, such as the ballads included in this week's episode. Uh, Music and sound design otherwise are all original for the show. You can also find our donor link on the website. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of uh, rewards, including exclusive access to uh, extra elements that uh, go into the making of the podcast, uh, digital downloads of rare books used in preparation for the show, uh, the soundscapes you hear in the background below my voice, and my Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that makes possible uh, me continuing this show as a uh, regular bi monthly release. A special thanks to our new patrons uh, Joanna Ball, Katie Swanson, Shauna Reed, Bailey DeVoe, and uh, to Brendan uh, Labor for upping his donation level. Um, and at the risk of being redundant, I'd like to thank some other donors I may have not yet thanked. I'm not sure my records are a bit fuzzy, but these names are Brandy Murray, Wolfie Thorne, Nicolette Rivette, and Aaron Bobik. The show is written and produced by me, Al Ridenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.